seems like Jesus is popping up everywhere. Let me give you an example. Here is a picture on the screen of grilled cheese. And on this grilled cheese sandwich, what do you know? The lady was one day just hungry, made herself a grilled cheese, flipped that grilled cheese sandwich over to get the other side roasted, looked down, and there on her grilled cheese was Jesus. Do you guys see the face of Jesus on the grilled cheese? That made it onto national news, Jesus on the grilled cheese sandwich. I mean, I think grilled cheese are pretty spiritual anyway. I love those things. But here we actually have Jesus on grilled cheese. And here's another picture. Somebody found Jesus in a Kit Kat bar. You know, I, I love Kit Kat bars. Um, but right, took a bite and boom, right there in the wafery feeling is Jesus. Here he is on a pizza. You know, some of you love pizza, and now you just, you know, you recognize, wow, they are divine. There is Jesus right on a pizza. Well, enough about food. Here is Jesus on a tea towel. She was cleaning up a little mess after tea, and lo and behold, there was Jesus on the towel. Here's kind of a creepy-looking Jesus, but this is on the back of somebody's rocking chair. Uh, the wood grain is like, hey, I think there's Jesus in my rocking chair. And, of course, that made it on KTLA TV as well. Let's go to the next one. Here is uh, Jesus on, yeah, you guessed it, an iron. Uh, he's even there, Jesus in the, the pressing moments of life. Here's another one. This person had just finished cooking bacon, which I think is also another spiritual moment right there, right? And lo and behold, there was Jesus crying in the bacon pan. Uh, here's Jesus on a piece of sheet metal for you uh, metal workers. Yes, he's even there. He's at the steel workers union, and you can see him right there. Here's Jesus on a water stain uh, behind plaster. You see him? Yeah, his eye there. Okay, Walmart shoppers, yes, Jesus is there too. He's on a receipt from Walmart. Uh, good luck taking that back. And then here is Jesus on the face of a cliff. You see him there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, here's another one. Uh, next, here's Jesus on somebody's laundry. They were out hanging their socks to dry, and sure enough, there was Jesus right on the sock. He enters our stinky parts of life as well. Here he is after a guy had done some uh, sawmill work and was cleaning up, and lo and behold, there was Jesus the carpenter right on his floor. And finally, yes, all of God's creatures uh, dropped a Jesus right there on the windshield of that car. <laughs> Jesus is practically everywhere. Here's another picture, one, one more picture. Do you see Jesus in the vast expanse of the universe? Now, you're not going to see his face here. But what I want us to talk about today, and what I want us to challenge you to do today is, is to think grander than you ever have about Jesus. That, yeah, maybe he'll show up in your Kit Kat or your Reese's peanut butter cup or whatever, but you know what? I want us to elevate our view of Jesus for a moment because when you look at this, you should see Jesus. In fact, when you look at any images that NASA develops or posts, or the vastness of our universe, you should see Christ there because too often our view of Jesus is just way too small. So this morning, I want to talk about in our Rooted in Christ series, I want to talk about the supremacy of Christ. I know that supremacy kind of has a, a whole different viewpoint today in our racial charged uh, culture in which we live. This is not about anything racial, okay? 
This is actually biblical. In fact, if you open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, you look at the heading over the paragraph we're going to look at, it talks about the supremacy of Christ. And we're going to talk about how in Christ there is absolute supremacy. So here's the question. What makes something supreme? According to the great authority Taco Bell, something becomes supreme when you add sour cream and tomatoes to it. I don't know what it is about sour cream and tomatoes, but you put them on a taco, it is no longer an ordinary taco. It is now a taco supreme. That's right. You can also do the same thing to nachos. Take plain, ordinary nachos. Well, you pop some sour cream and tomatoes, and they are supreme. According to another reputable source, Totino's Pizza, when you take a... How many grew up on Totino's Pizzas? Those little Frisbees? Yeah, you remember those? They're still the same size. You can still fit two on a baking pan at my house anyway. I don't eat two of them. I eat three. But um, (laughs) you can still fit two on a pan. Um, But you want to take an ordinary plain pepperoni pizza and you, you want to make it supreme? You know what you do to it? You add sausage, onions, and bell pepper. And all of a sudden, that boring pepperoni pizza is now supreme. But I think there's probably a better source to quote when it comes to things that are supreme. And that's Webster's Dictionary, because I think he has a great touch on what supreme is. It's not adding sour cream or tomatoes or bell peppers or onions or sausage. He says it this way, that supreme means the highest in rank or authority, that it is the highest in the degree of quality. So if something is supreme, it ranks in authority and it ranks above all in quality. And I think Jesus perfectly, perfectly shows supremacy in the way he lives, that he is highest in authority and he is highest in quality. So in the letter to the church at Colossae, we looked last week at the fact that Paul was writing this letter to a church that he had never visited personally. They had been evangelized by a guy named Epaphras, a disciple actually of Jesus who learned about Christ through Paul's ministry when he was in Ephesus. And Epaphras gets saved, and he begins to do what all saved people did. He began to talk about Jesus wherever he went. He found himself eventually as the leader of the church in Colossae. But there was an issue in this church. We'll talk about it here in a moment. But he's writing, Paul's writing this letter because Epaphras came to visit him when he was imprisoned in Rome. And Paul was hearing about what was happening in the church that he had never yet visited. And one of the things was that false teachers had, been, had crept into the church and, and were trying to limit the supremacy of Jesus. In fact, they were trying to strip the divinity away from Christ, that he was nothing more than just a man who made bold claims but certainly couldn't be God. We'll talk more about why they believed that here in a moment. But as you read Colossians, it's interesting because after kind of the perfunctory parts of his letter where he kind of says, I'm Paul, I'm writing to you, the Colossian church, and then he takes time to show them how he's praying for them. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. And then the very first thing Paul does as he just jumps into this glorious hymn of praise about who Christ is and about how great he is. In fact, when you look at this, it looks like a hymn. In fact, some of your translations of the Bible may actually have it laid out like the lyrics of a song, depending on which Bible you've got. Because what happens here is Paul's addressing the issue that the church was trying to neuter Jesus as far as his divinity. And so he, from the very beginning, is going to elevate who Christ is. And he does it through song. 
And we see it in Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. And we're going to break this hymn, this, this poem down, and look at it a few ways of how Christ is supreme. And it's not just because he had tomatoes added to him, okay? It's not because he had a little dash of sour cream. It's, he is supreme because of the things that Paul begins to lay out for the church at Colossae that I think are important for us to understand today because we tend to have a small view of Christ, and it's time to open our eyes to see Christ in all of his fullness and all of his supremacy. First of all, Christ is supreme because he is God. Let's look at it. Colossians 1.15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The image of the invisible God. Let's break this down for a minute. The heresy that was happening in the church where the false teachers were coming in, they were basically saying that from their viewpoint, all matter is evil, is corrupt. All flesh is corrupt. Therefore, in their argument, how could God in His holiness clothe himself with flesh. Certainly God would never do that. So this viewpoint was called Gnosticism, and this Gnostic viewpoint, part of it, there's a lot more to it, but part of it was that all matter, all flesh is evil. And so God would certainly never do that. So Jesus could not have been the Son of God. That was basically, in a nutshell, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's basically, in a nutshell, the false teaching that was taking place in the church. The church, at this point yet, really wasn't listening I mean, they were hearing what the people are saying, but they really hadn't bought into it yet. And Paul's writing to remind them of who Jesus really is, that he is God. And Paul uses some very intentional words. He says that he is the image of the invisible God. Now, here's what we know about God the Father. As you know, and this is hard for us as humans to understand, but there is a thing called the Trinity. Perhaps you've heard about it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Hard for us to understand, Okay. But God the Father is spirit. The Bible says, in fact, Jesus says that the Father, that God is spirit, right? And those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So there's this sense that when it comes to God, we, he is invisible, all right? Here's why. Think about it for a minute. To be what God is called, which is everywhere present, or the fancy word is omnipresent, for God to be everywhere present, he can't do that in the confines of a, of a physical body, right? Now, there were times we see in the Old Testament where God appeared to man in a form. In fact, there was that time when Moses said, hey, I'd love to see you, God, and God allows him, in essence, to see him. Uh, but it's just the back of God because nobody can see the face of God and live is basically what the Bible had talked about. So there were times that God appeared to take form, but generally speaking, God is omnipresent. He is a spirit. Therefore, the, the physical human eyes can't see it. But we can learn about God. And we have in the Old Testament. You look at the Old Testament and you begin to see who God is. God is the creator, that God has a purpose for people's lives. And he, he calls aside Abraham. And through Abraham, he gives a promise that all the world will be blessed. And then we have the, long story short, the nation of Israel, which he enters covenant relationship with. And they dwell together through the series of laws and sacrifices in the temple. And they begin to discover that God is loving and he's just and he's forgiving. And all these things about God that we discover through the word. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about how we heard about God. And part of that was the, was the prophets as well. Hebrews 1, beginning at verse 1. In the past, 
God has spoken to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, that's Jesus, okay? And he goes on to say this, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. And after He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So here's what happened. God who was invisible... God who interacted through a fire or through cloud or through whatever happened in the Old Testament, he became incarnate. God the Son came in the incarnation of Christ. He became man. That basically God the Son did something that's never been done before. He entered space. He entered our dimension. He entered our time. Remember, God is eternal, right? So he's always been, always will be. So there's this aspect of God that he is outside of the scope of time. That means he is past, he is present, and he is future. Again, something we can't understand, but God transcends time. He's outside of the measure of time. But through Christ, he inserted himself. God the Son came incarnate into our world, clothed himself with humanity, lived under the real times that we all have to face, had the real limitations that as a man that he had to face. And he became, as he said, the image, the image of the invisible God. So what does that mean, an image? It basically can mean a representation or a reproduction of the likeness of something else. For example, when you take a selfie, which I don't like to take. But when you take a selfie, you are making a, a likeness of yourself. Now, the truth is, how many of us know we tend to touch up the likeness of ourselves? You know, we might stand a little differently, suck our chest in, suck our cheeks in, and kind of hold the camera just right so it presents the likeness you want. But the reality is, when it comes to Jesus, he is the exact likeness. How many of you have seen a picture of yourself and said, wow, that, is, that can't be me? You know, that's not me. I don't like that picture of me. That can't be me. No, that's not the case. With Christ, he is the image of God. In fact, in the Greek language, the word that's used is icon. You've probably heard of the word icon before. But basically what it boils down to is it is a representation of a figure. An icon might be a statue. An icon might be on the coins impressed upon the coins, the hero, or in our case, presidential figures who are on our coins, those are considered to be a likeness or an icon. But Paul says he's more than just a reproduction. The other term that icon is used for in the Greek language is a manifestation. In other words, what that means is rather than just being in the likeness of God, because we as humans are made in the image or the likeness of God, right? That doesn't make us gods, just in case you think you are, okay? Uh, we're not gods. But what happened here in Christ is he is the manifestation, and he is God himself in flesh. So he is supreme because he is God. And when you see Christ and you see how he ministers to the poor and the ill and how he ministers to the outcast and the sinful people, what you're seeing is how God ministers to those same people. When you see Jesus... You're seeing a likeness of the Father. So some of you have to get this because when you think about God the Father, you think he doesn't like you. You think he's cruel. You think he's a judge. You think he's hostile. No, you have to look at the fact that he is the image that we see in Jesus. 
grace, love, mercy, truth, justice, yes, all those things in their full measure. And here's the thing. Jesus shows us what God is, okay? But here's what he also does. He also shows us what all persons are meant to be. We have a goal before us as followers of Jesus, to be like Christ, not that we become little gods. That's not the point. But he has given us a humankind now to emulate. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. This is how we, are, we know that we are in him. How do you know you're in Christ? Here's how. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Wow, that's kind of a high order, Kelly. Yeah, it is. This kind of pushes back against contemporary Christianity that just makes it want to be a weekend event. To something we have to live out every day, I have to live like Jesus would live? Well, what does that mean? Yeah, that means you would live like Jesus would live. In fact, Paul said it best, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other words, we all have the goal of Christ-likeness. But he also describes, Paul does, describes Jesus as the firstborn over all creation. So he's the image of the invisible God, but he's also the firstborn over all creation. Now, what does that mean? There's been some controversy over this because some people believe that what that means is that Jesus was created by God. And maybe that's something you've heard before. Jesus was created by God. He was the first thing that was made. No, Jesus was not created by God because that would violate the first truth about Jesus, which is that he is God. Again, and we can't really understand that. But firstborn is not about that he was the first that was created and everything else was created. Firstborn is not about sequence It's actually about status. Let me explain. In the Old Testament, the firstborn son of a family was a critical role. In fact, if you were the firstborn, you would then become ultimately the supreme authority over all your siblings. So you firstborns out there, you are the supreme being over your siblings. At least that was the Old Testament viewpoint. Don't go home and Tell your younger siblings, you know, the truth is I am supreme. I am supreme over all of you. I am the baby of the family, so I can't claim that. But in the Old Testament, all the rights of that family went to that firstborn. And it would happen in a very unique way because there would be a blessing of the father over the firstborn son where all of those things would be transferred to him and he would now have the authority for the family. So what basically God is saying about Jesus is that he is the firstborn over all creation. So now think about it in the same way I just said it. He is now supreme over all creation. So everything is about and points toward Jesus, which brings us to the next point, that Christ is supreme because he is creator. Not many of you have thought about Jesus, the creator, We think about creator God, or we think about the God the Father. You don't think about creator Jesus, but Paul lays it out for us. Colossians chapter 116. Listen to these words that he uses. Listen to these prepositional phrases, all right? Some of you are going, what what phrases? Yeah, I didn't do very good in English either, but I think preposition is basically those words that are like in, for, through, okay? Maybe Schoolhouse Rock did a little episode about those, I don't know, but here we go. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, anything. All things have been created, listen to this, through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him 
In him, all things hold together. Now, what Paul is revealing here in this praise about Christ is something that is rather profound. All right? Paul states that all things were created in Christ, through Christ, and ultimately for Christ. What does that mean? That means that all creation is sustained by Christ, and it finds its ultimate purpose in Christ. This is very important for us to understand when it comes to the end of time stuff. Everything in the universe, and especially in our world, points toward Christ. God didn't just start creation, get the world spinning, and walk away and say, okay, guys, you're on your own. Jesus actually sustains all of creation. In fact, the whole universe. You remember singing the song as a kid, he's got the whole what? World. You know what? That's a small view of Jesus. You were improperly taught as a child because it's not just that he's got the whole world in his hands, friends. According to Paul, he's got the universe in his hands. Now, modern science would tell us that our universe is a cosmic accident, that some chaotic explosion somehow magically made life set into motion and order fall into place, that that some kind of accident created all that we have today, including the beauty of our creation and the human life. Here's the thing about science. It can only examine the evidences of creation. That's all science can do. Do you know where science falls short? Describing the how of the what. They say Big Bang. I say big deal, right? Because to me, it's like, hey, who was behind the Big Bang? How did that just happen, right? They still have this kind of holy grail of science called the theory of everything. They, they want to have this, this sense. They're looking for this holy grail that begins to explain physically everything that caused motion to happen, and they haven't got there yet. Do you know why? Because according to Paul, Jesus is that theory of everything. And get this, it said in Hebrews, by his powerful word, the same Jesus who walked this earth and spoke to the woman who was sinful, go and sin no more, was the same being who spoke over creation and still holds it all together. Friends, this is... This is baffling. Paul affirms for us that the world is not a purposeless accident in the chemistry lab of the universe, that in fact, there is an intention. He makes it clear that we cannot understand God or creation or even God's purpose for creation without seeing Christ. Look, listen to how John describes it. John chapter 1, verse 1. Paul begins his gospel with this. In the beginning was the word. That's Jesus, Logos, the living word. And the word was with God, so that means he's always been, he wasn't created, and the word was God. There it establishes again his divinity, that he is God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. What does this mean for us today? It means that we are totally dependent on Christ, friends. The universe is totally dependent on Christ. Our dependence isn't just for our salvation. If you just make Jesus out to be a savior, then you have narrowed your view of who Jesus is because he's so much grander than that. In fact, you could say it this way. 
that if Christ holds the universe together, which he does, according to Paul, according to John, and guess who they learned this from? Jesus. Then Christ can hold my life together. See, some of you feel like your life is a chaotic mess. You feel like your life is the Big Bang, and all of a sudden things have just gone very awry, and things are falling apart, and you're wondering, how can I make any sense out of this? Here's what you have to understand. Christ is not just a baby in a manger. He's not just a bleeding Savior on a cross. He's not just a risen Savior who gives us eternal life. He is master of the universe. Master of the universe. He holds it all together under the power of his mighty word. And guess what? He can speak a word over your life, and it holds it together. So when your life feels like it's spiraling out of control, remember this. Jesus, the master of the universe, can hold my life, to, my life together as I trust him, and as I lean on him. Christ is supreme also because he's the head of the church. He's the head of the church. A portion of Paul's hymn speaks about Christ as the sustainer of creation, this mediator of creation, the preserver and the controller, protector of creation, the aim of all creation. And then he moves from this kind of grand universal scale right down to something kind of finite, the church, the body of Christ, Paul says. Let's look at it, Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the church, or the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. See, Paul once again uses this analogy he uses often in his letters about the church. He calls them the body of Christ. If we could just truly understand this, friends, that as a church, we are the manifestation of Jesus in our world today. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. God's presence is with us, and we are to be his representation in our world. We are his body. Now, why is this important that he's the head? Think about the purpose of your own head for a minute. It does serve a purpose. That's why it's there. Uh, that's why it's here, the top of your you know, body, because it is to be the authority over your life. Within your head, you have housed the thing called your brain. And while you may not like your brain, uh, <laughs> it is critical, right? What happens if I decide to sever myself right here at the neckline and be done with with the top of my head. Head, I don't need you any longer. What would happen to my, to my body? It would cease to exist, at least to, lie, to, to live. Why? Because the brain controls everything. So this is a very fitting picture of Jesus. Yes, he is the authority, the head over the church, but he's also the one who governs and controls and moves his body. Now, here's the thing. If I lop my head off, my body dies. When churches decide that the Christ of the Bible is no longer the head of their church. They become a lifeless form. And friends, this is the great tragedy against the Christian movement today. Is when churches who call themselves churches begin to teach things that are anti-Christ. We're in danger. When you want to make Jesus out to be just a historical figure who taught great things that we could apply to our life to become better people, we're in danger. You know, many of you remember watching cartoons that had the headless horseman, right? Pretty creepy, right? When churches remove Jesus as the head of their church, 
it gets creepy quick. He needs a body who will follow his lead. And friends, we need to be that. So what does that mean for you and me today? That means that church does not exist to meet the needs of its members. That's what it means. The church exists to be the extension of Christ's mission. Now, we should care for each other. We should love each other. We should be there for each other. But if we miss this point that we are to be the expression of Christ's mission through the what we do as a church, if we miss that, then we've missed the boat completely. This is what his body does. It does what Jesus did when he was here. Finally, Christ is supreme because he is our only Savior. He is our only Savior. Friends, there is no other way to get right with the Father. Jesus said, I am the way. We sing about it in one of the opening choruses. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible says that no one, in other words, no one, okay? No one comes to the Father except through him. That's what Jesus made. That was his bold claim. Look at how Paul puts it. Colossians 1.19, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness. Again, Jesus was fully God. His fullness in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I want you to think about something for a minute with me. I want you to go back in time with me just in our imagination for a minute. I want you to go back to before the Garden of Eden, before creation was spoken. I want you to envision yourself with the Godhead. Not, don't make yourself God, but just put yourself there for a minute. Envision being Christ and speaking into creation all that we know today that Genesis shows us. The creation of time, the creation of earth and sky, all the animals that filled the land and the water and all this beautiful creation. And then he crafts man out of the dirt of the ground and breathes life into him a life-giving breath of the Spirit of God within the man, Adam, and he becomes a living being, the Bible says, and then he has a job to name all the animals, but it's noticed that it's not good for this man to be alone, and so God creates a helper for him, Eve, and they live in this beautiful garden. And God creates this one tree that we can't understand why he put it there, called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he gives the man and woman one law, don't eat from that tree. And imagine as the creator of the universe watches as Eve reaches for the created fruit, tempted by the enemy to become like God. Takes the fruit, eats it, gives it to Adam who was there supporting her actions. They both eat it and and immediately the sinful nature enters their hearts and they are corrupted. Imagine being the creator Jesus, watching humanity do this to you, turn their back on you. And there's now formed a great chasm between God and and man, a great chasm called sin that nobody can cross. Man has no ability to bridge that gap, powerless to be saved. In fact, sin does that to us, doesn't it? Sin makes us helpless and hopeless. That's what sin does. If you're feeling helpless and hopeless today, you don't have to be. But that's what the sin nature does in us. It creates the sense of there's no hope. There's no help for me because that's what sin does. That's how it wrecks us and ruins us. But here's the thing. I mean, imagine being the creator, watching all of this happen. If I was a creator, I might. Now, I know I'm not. But if I was, I might have said, you know what? This didn't work very well. Kind of like, you know, craft project number one at 
middle school didn't work out, so it goes to the what? Scrap pile, and I'm going to grab another piece of wood, and I'm going to try it again. He could have just said, you know what? I'm scrapping this thing. I'm going to go to some place over the rainbow, create something better, maybe a planet Earth number two, where things will be correct, and we're going to try this again. But here's what he did. He didn't do that. He didn't scrap his creation. He didn't give up on us. Listen to me today. Listen, listen. If he didn't give up on the mess of our humanity, he is not going to give up on you. He's not going to give up on you. But he watches. He begins to interact and reach out to humanity through the, the, through the interaction he had with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel. And he establishes laws and the sacrifices and all those things as a, in kind of an effort to have relationship with them. But even those things were insufficient in and of themselves. The sacrifices were not going to be lasting. The sacrifices and the offerings and the laws weren't going to close that gap, but it became a a measure with which God would interact with humankind. But then, the surprise of all surprises, right? God recognizes the role he has to play. And he steps into humanity. He feels pain. He feels hunger. He feels disappointment. He feels all these things now clothed in humanity, fully God, but he inserts himself into our story. What did he do to have to do that? Nothing but his own grace and his mercy. Why? Because Paul said he wants to reconcile the world to himself. And so Jesus inserts himself into humankind, becomes the man from Galilee that we know as Jesus of Nazareth. And he ministers to people of all varieties while he is here, the three and a half years that he's preaching as an adult. And then he goes to a cross to die on a cross. Why? Because of what he saw set into motion thousands of years earlier. And he steps in to fix it himself, the creator now becomes the redeemer and the reconciler who brings us back in right relationship with God. Friends, that's what Paul is trying to help us understand. He moves it from this grand scale of the Lord of the universe to the head of the church to get this, that Christ is not just Lord of the universe. He is Lord of you. He's Lord of me. And this is the part that's hard for us to wrap our heads around. That the Lord of the universe, who holds all things together by the power of his word, also now can become our personal Lord and Savior. And Paul ends with that. Colossians 1.21. Once, we were all a once. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free of accusation. Here's the thing. You're on one side of the equation or the other. You're either still an alien or an enemy of God because of your evil behavior, because of your sin, because of your your denial of who God is and who Christ is. You're still an enemy. Or you can put yourself on the other side of the equation which I love, this is the side I'm on, and I hope we could all be here, reconciled to God by Christ's death. And listen to these words, that you are holy in his sight. You might not feel perfect. You might feel very broken. You might feel like a mess. But when God looks at you through the lens of Christ's death for you, he sees you holy. You know what else he sees? Without blemish. 
You might think your sin has messed your life up, that you are marred and scarred for life, but he looks at you and he sees nothing but purity. And not just that, but without accusation. Nobody is accusing you any longer today except yourself or the enemy who's always going to be the accuser. But God doesn't speak accusation over you. Which side of the equation are you on? Because that's the important thing we have to come to today. What Christ has done, he is supreme over all the universe. And he could have just left it at that. But no, he wanted to become your personal Lord and Savior. And that's what the cross was all about. He spoke creation, it fell apart at man's free will. But now he offers new creation. How are you going to respond to it? It's a choice we have to make to be a new creation, the old gone, the new coming, 2 Corinthians 5.17. But which side of the equation are you on? There's no neutral ground, friends. It's not like, well, I'm okay with God. No, it's you're either an enemy or you are holy in his sight. Which side are you on? Let's pray. Lord, we want to make you supreme over our lives. But all of us know what it was like when we were enemies, when we were alienated from you because of our evil behavior. We've all been in that moment when we have felt the prompting within our hearts of the Holy Spirit to respond to the truth of the gospel that, yes, Jesus, you are God, you are creator, but you are also the man who came in human form, God yet man, went to that cross to pay the price ultimately for my sin, to reconcile me to the creator once again. Jesus, in you, you spoke all of creation, and yet you also speak new creation for those of us that are broken, which is all of us. So we have a choice to either accept this and and move from being an enemy to being holy in your sight or to continue to push away from you. But Lord, we need to put you in your rightful place. Paul reminds us in Philippians that one day every knee is going to bow. Every knee. We can make that decision to do that right now rather than against our will. We can make that choice because of who you are rather than bowing because of the awesomeness of who you are someday. And I pray we'd choose to do it by our own accord today. So I pray for anybody in the room today, God, that you're speaking to. They would choose today to respond to you. Maybe you're here and you're saying, Kelly, I, I feel like what you've said, I need to respond in some capacity. I'm not sure exactly how, but I just feel like you've been speaking about some things that have been ringing in my heart, and I just got to respond today in some fashion. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe that's you. And you would just raise a hand and say, Kelly, that's me. Pray with me today. I, I need to respond to this, either because my life has fallen apart and I need to know that Jesus is the sustainer of my life. Or he can also be my savior. Raise a hand if that's you today. Kelly, I need that. Thank you. There's hands going up. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Let me pray with you. Father, you see uh, not just our hands, but you know our lives. You know what's going on. Lord, you know there are those that have been pushing back from you for years because they couldn't make it make sense. And then there's a truth to this that's very hard for us to understand. But there's also a beautiful simplicity of God entering our story to make it right with a fallen world. So Lord, whatever that response might need to be today, there are those in this room who need to respond to you. And I thank you that you love them, that you have a plan for them, 
and you've made everything possible for their salvation. There's nothing we can do to earn that. We simply need to respond to the truth that, Jesus, you are the Savior of our sin. And their choice today is to choose you, to find forgiveness in you. Your word tells us if we confess our sins that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And I pray that right now for anybody who needs to make that decision, that right now they would say, Jesus, I do that. I need you. And I confess my sin, that I'm a sinner who's broken by my own life choices, but I know that I need a Savior, and you are that Savior. And I give my life to you today. There are others that maybe have been serving you, Jesus, but their view of you has been way small. And because of that, their life is spinning out of control. And God, I pray that in these moments they would recognize the vastness of who you are. The Christ who holds the universe also holds their life today. And may that give them strength to face tomorrow, to make better decisions tomorrow, to be a better husband or a wife or a mom or a dad tomorrow, because you are with them. And as Paul reminds us, that all things are possible in you through Christ who gives us strength. So thank you, Lord, that we need to put you in that rightful place, supreme over all. Let us know what that means from this day on. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.